Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Mark Howard, BNP Paribas Senior Multi-Asset Specialist, 705. Usually it breaks down at 702. Mark, great to have you with us. Looking down to Washington, D.C., Mark, draw the distinction for us between noise and news. I can promise you I'm not going to sing. Thanks for having me today. Good, you could stay. Uh, you know, there, there's a, a lot of noise. I like to use the analogy of the wonderful French Open that BNP is proud to sponsor. There's a lot of back and forth in D.C., and the markets have had to respond to it. There's been, uh, you know, a, a, a series of headlines, whether it's around the Supreme Court, around uh, the president's taxes, and, and who knows what else is going to come out of the debate tomorrow. But investors have pulled back. There's no question. And I think that's a really important theme for your viewers to to grapple with is that there was a long bullish run led by NASDAQ, but also in in the credit markets and, and in other parts of fixed income. And, and now people have pulled back a little bit. September has been a, a, a month of consolidation. And I think October will be the same. It's going to be bumpy. And tomorrow night, we're going to get a, a full dose of that. Mark Howard, I want to digress here. You were kind enough to send me uh, a wonderful uh, coffee mug from the oyster people up on the Damariscott of the Glidden oyster people. They are an absolute textbook small business. How bad is small business like Glidden oyster getting crushed right now? Well, it, it is a, a genuine concern, as you've heard, and I think you also might have heard uh, Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren speak last uh, last week saying how uh, some of the, the, the lending programs to small businesses have not had as big a take up as, as some might have thought. So I think there's a there's a lot of stress in the system and uh, you hear that from voters. You see that in some of the protests on both sides of the aisle. And uh, and there's a lot of anxiety, especially with the October 1 roll-off of, of support. You, you've, you've heard the airline companies uh, speak very vocally about their need for additional fiscal support from Washington. And uh, the same is true for small business. Well, a lot of people agree it's going to be a rocky period going forward. Even Mike Wilson, who's been a, a bull for most of this year of Morgan Stanley, coming out over the weekend and saying he expects the sell-off to continue where do you get defensive and how? Do you just go to cash or do you depend on, say, the 10-year Treasury to do more than just flatline? Well, it's, as you guys were, were laughing earlier, the, the tenure has been kind of boring lately. So I don't think there's been a lot of money going into that. I do think people want optimum liquidity. And Lisa, it's a great question because when you talk to the major fund managers, what's really critical to realize is that their year was made in March and April. They made a lot of money stepping into the breach, exploiting volatility and uncertainty and turbulence. And so in order to do that again, if we have it in October or around the election in November, they need pure liquidity. And so I think you're gonna see it in cash, you're gonna see it in money markets and in short-term T-bills and short notes. Well, Mark, let's talk about where the gap could be that they might fill. <clears throat> High yield spreads, just winding a little bit. You know, I don't want to make too much of a big deal of this. I don't think it's significant yet, but it's not insignificant what we saw last week, Mark, considering mm -hmm. that the Fed's now a player. Your thoughts on the cracks that emerged in the last week or so? Yeah, I think they were, they were pretty broad. It wasn't just, uh, you know, softening in valuations. There was the first outflow in high yield in, in some time. Uh, we watched the credit derivatives marketplace closely, and we saw an increase in interest for, um, uh, for credit protection uh, in the options market. And we also saw 
uh, a reduction in the, the longs of the CDXIG. So I think there are a number of signals. And of course, the emerging markets had some softness. So I think, uh, you know, there are a number of places that you could see further weakening uh, in the event that we have a lot of instability and questions, particularly around constitutional issues, because that's not a playbook that investors have much history with, right? It, the virus was a big unknown, but at least the Fed could address that. The Fed's not in a position really to address a constitutional issue if, in fact, that comes to pass. Mark, what's the measurement of your wall of worry right now? I mean, hasn't short interest in all this? I mean, folks, the S&P 500 based off futures up 42 is down a horrific 7%. Oh, the humanity. I mean, Mark, I mean, we're down 7% on SPX right now. And am I right? There's just been a massive swing to a short bet. Uh, I think uh, I don't know about that, Tom. I think there's been more just taking some chips off the table. Uh, in certain names, there, I'm sure there have been some idiosyncratic short bets put on. But I think a little bit of uh, steam blowing out of the system is a healthy thing. So I'm, my wall of worry is not that high. I think the odds of a, of a major disruption later this year are quite low. Uh, and that's why valuations are still so attractive or so full in many asset classes. My, my point, though, is that late in the year, after investors have done pretty well, uh, particularly since March, it's just human nature to take some chips off the table. So, and I think the lesson learned back then was when you sense some anxiety, you need some liquidity. You need to be prepared to pounce. And so that's what prudent investors are doing. Um, and, and it's augmented a little bit by quarter end, the end of September. Hey, Mark, great to catch up as always. Good to see you. Mark Howard you. there have been on the latest in this market. Lale wasn't available on Friday and she couldn't make the 9 Eastern show. So this was third choice for Lale. So yeah, I'm happy to have Lale with us this morning. And I can share her with you. <laughs> and I was third Lale choice too. Thanks a lot, John. JYCM Senior Fund Manager joins us right now. Lale, great to catch up. You've got that dashboard. You're looking at high yield spreads. We've had a move of about 40 basis points over the last week or so. When does it start to say buy again to you? <laughs> well, I was just going to pitch for uh, Tom's triple levered cash funds over here. Is that Look, what you're think, doing? Cash? <laughs> no, no. I mean, we, we're keeping our cash reserves, right? The reality is cash is king, right? Don't let anybody tell you anything else because as you and I, we've spoken about this. There's no such thing as cash in the sidelines and liquidity in the markets are poor. So for people to be opportunistic, to take advantage of dislocations, you have to have cash. Whether that's cash or you're sitting in treasuries, you need to have something that's immediately sellable. And unfortunately, credit is not one of those asset classes. So the way we are looking at it is really, in our view, high yield still screens expensive. But the key theme in high yield is play the refinancing. So... These double Bs and single Bs that are in defensive that have yield to call paper that, believe it or not, only maybe yields more than five and a half percent. Five and a half percent coupon is now, quote unquote, high coupon. They are in the market to refinance. And I think for us, that's the last hurrah in high yield to capture a little bit more income than investment grade uh, before perhaps we turn even more bearish on high yield. It's subject to economic recovery. So, Lala, you would turn even more bearish. What kind of spread are you looking for on high yield potentially at the moment? At the moment, we're about 540. What kind of levels are you waiting for? Well, 540, it's, it's misleading, right? It has, you know, it has double Bs that trade in 200 and 300 range that everybody else is hiding out. And then you have the industries that are at the epicenter of uh, recovery, 
leisure, entertainment, transportation that trades, you know, multiples of that, right? So half of the high yield index is subject to the recovery. So you have to be really careful how you how you pick your spots in this. I mean, the example I'll give you, you just said the high yield markets are wider by 40 and 50 basis points over the last week. The recovery themes last week widened 3x that, right? So when you are entering at this point in time, knowing what you know, you have to be really careful because the upside downside is just not um, justified. So fair value high yield, believe it or not, I think it's still in the 700s. Lale, this raises a really good point, which John touched on earlier, which is the market is wondering what more the Fed could do to backstop credit, given how much they've done already. And have we reached this point, Lale, where any Fed put is baked in and any additional purchases they do will be peripheral and won't make a material difference on spread, uh, spread narrowing? I mean, the market will respond to incremental news, as you guys highlight. So I think the Fed put is baked in. I mean, you know that their purchases have slowed down, but that's in line with their statement. Um, and I think there will be there to backstop the market. But remember, they're actually predominantly backstopping investment grade. They are backstopping high yield very little through the high yield ETFs and the fallen angels. That's a very different dynamic. And again, it opened the refinancing gates for the higher quality. There's very little near-term maturity that's left for the high-yield companies. If anything, actually, look at the headlines in the last two weeks. The quality <laughs> companies are going for M&A, LBO, and strategic financing. So credit, nobody works for the bondholders, right? Everybody works for the equity holders. And I think that's the risk you take now on the yeah. higher quality. The, the <clears throat> focus is going to shift. What's so important here, folks, is the Bloomberg's got lots of fancy stuff that Lolly's really good at. One of them is HZ1, the horizon analysis chart. Lolly, I just put in the thing Farrell bought a couple years ago, which is a 98-year Austrian piece, and he's made 121%. That's why Farrell's looking in Notting Hill. I mean, he's killed it with that Austrian bond, 100 to, I think, 211. Then rates will go the other way. Explain to our audience what happens if we actually get yield up price down. What does that do to the horizon analysis? Well, I mean, that's the problem with the broader investment grade markets, right? I mean, the lower coupons met every company was issuing longer and longer. And as a result, I mean, I think this is also one of Lisa's favorite charts. If you look at the average duration in the in the indices, in the you know, global ag indices, it's over eight and a half years. And look at the spreads, which are not tight, divide them by the two, it gives you your break-even point. And if you looked at it historically, it's around 12 basis points on the break-even point. That is your resistance point. And some of these investment grade companies, you're not getting paid for the credit risk. So increasingly you're taking not only credit risk, but you're also taking a rate risk. And that could be very dangerous. Now, rates may never rise, that's entirely possible. But people have to walk into this trade eyes wide open. Lale, just a final question for me. When you say 700 basis points, fair value, is that what you just think fair value is or where you think spreads are going? <laughs> Always the tricky questions. Um, I think that's where the spreads should be going. If the economic recovery doesn't happen, 
vaccine doesn't turn out to be anything in as an immediate catalyst. Some of these industries in that 50% cohort that I've talked about in the high yield industry, they are structurally and secularly challenged. They're gonna run, they're either gonna go out of business or they're gonna run at 50 to 70% capacity, which means you have to start baking in capital impairment to the bonds, which are not being baked in at this point in time. Lali, great to catch up as always. Always enjoy catching up. Lally Top Charlie there of JOHCM. Hi, so right now from the 2nd District in Arkansas this week of politics, we love speaking to the Vanderbilt economist French Hill. He joins us, of course, from Arkansas, from a place that is very much pro uh, this president. French Hill, I want to talk about the Delta Bank of Arkansas. You are a banker at heart. What do you do when somebody comes in with loan documents like what the New York Times is saying of the president? I mean, this is odd financial statements, to say the least. Forget about the morality that Congressman Waltz of uh, Florida was talking about. Just on a sheer doing business. Have you ever done a, a, a business with someone like the president of the United States? Well, Tom, good morning. Thanks for having me. When you look at real estate investors, our tax code really encourages real estate investment and treats it quite favorably. And when you make real estate loans and review financial statements of somebody who's a real estate developer, then you're going to be looking at cash flow and how cash is being used because there are very few uh, reported profits in a lot of uh, real estate companies, particularly that use partnership or do a lot of upfront costs and a lot of upfront development every year. It's that development trail uh, that causes those a lot of those uh, tax offsets for the net profits. Will you expect to see the vice president, Mr. Biden, really be aggressive about this tomorrow night? Does he use this as a weapon or does he move on to the topics that matter nationally into your second congressional district of Arkansas? I think Vice President Biden will go on the attack and contrast strongly the things he disagrees with with the Trump administration. I think he'll probably stick to policy, but since he uh, uh, opened up yesterday in Wilmington with the health care topic. I think that'll be a principal topic uh, because of the Supreme Court nomination, because of the efforts to change Obamacare that we've made in the Congress over the last few years. But I don't put it past uh, Joe Biden from talking taxes. Congressman, while we wait for November 3rd to come around, there's a question about what will happen after that date. And Mitch McConnell, uh, Senate leader, has come out and said that there will be an orderly and peaceful transition of power. What will you do if you agree with Mitch McConnell about that if President Trump does not concede or is unwilling to go along with a peaceful transfer of power? We know all of our elections are controlled by our states. I think Americans who were... uh uh, actively watching the presidential election, watched that play out in uh, 2000 with uh, Gore v. Bush and the uh, efforts in Florida to recount ballots. So this will play out state by state. I, too, expect that we'll have a peaceful transfer of power in the inauguration of Donald Trump on the 20th of January. Uh, but look, this is going to have some challenges potentially in the states, and we'll just have to wait and see how that goes. There are lawyers on both sides to make sure every American vote counts. I would just urge Americans to uh, vote early 
and mail their ballot early so that there's no controversy that the, their vote will be counted if they're going to vote absentee. Okay, but absent faith alone, faith in the peaceful transfer, are you making any preparations or other lawmakers, Republicans in particular, making preparations in the case that there is not likely to be a peaceful transfer of power? Not that I'm aware of, because I don't think anybody expects that to be the case. I think people expect the vote to come in and be counted and that we'll have a new president in January. French Hill, I want to talk to you about stimulus. There's a wide presumption there'll be stimulus after the first of the year. It's been, a, you know, by all accounts, a disaster. Certainly Jerome Powell suggests it's a disaster that we haven't seen a stimulus. What kind of stimulus would be most efficacious for whomever wins the presidency? What's needed right now? Yeah, well, when you see the functioning of the markets and the access to uh, both uh, large corporations and public finance entities to be able to attack uh, uh, funding in the uh, markets, it's really small business that operates in the realm that's still struggling. Either it's a closed down economy by state decision or they're in a market like restaurants or hospitality that are still struggling. So for me, the most important thing is to extend the Paycheck Protection Program. We have $138 billion not spent in that program already appropriated. That's been blocked by the uh, negotiations between Speaker Pelosi and the Treasury Secretary. We have a discharge petition on the House floor this week to try to get that bill through the House and over to the Senate. Uh, with 218 votes, at least in the House. So I think small business is where I would focus that stimulus, uh, Tom. And also families, we've only clawed back about 50% of the jobs back from uh, the uh, sharp decline in April. And therefore, we need to have a compromise on both the unemployment compensation issue and any other support for our families. Congressman, lucky to have you on the show this morning. Looking forward to getting you back. Congressman French Hill there, joining us on the latest effort down in D.C. on the fiscal side and on that report from The New York Times. This is buried. I think it's on like page 942 of Trump Nation, the art of being the Donald. Donald Trump, I think people are tired of seeing the negative. You know, one of the reasons my books sell is because they're positive. People don't want to read about a negative Trump. I really believe that. And, of course, the language spoken to Timothy O'Brien. He is with Bloomberg Opinion, of course, acclaimed at the New York Times for years. And uh, we are thrilled that he has been a first call to us today as he's been very busy with perspective on the president's finances and, of course, perspective on the journalism of the New York Times. Tim O'Brien, I spoke to a congressman, uh, Green Beret from Boynton Beach today, who explained away these challenges and said everybody has a right to avoid taxes. And I give the Times, Tim O'Brien, great credit because that's exactly what they said. Is tax avoidance bad? Uh, you know, ta- there, are, there are legal, uh, perfectly legal ways to avoid taxes, Tom. I think um, looking at this simply through the lens of whether or not it's legally allowed, I think puts the conversation in the wrong place. Um, the problem we have is whether or not everyone in our society, uh, our neighbors and everyone else in this community pays their fair share. It also matters that the President of the United States, who engineered the most massive tax cut of the post-World War II era that largely benefited affluent taxpayers in corporate America, 
turns out to have only paid $750 in taxes the year he was elected president. So, Tim, given the exhaustive reporting of the New York Times, what are some of the risks that you think uh, are posed to this presidency uh, from his perhaps, uh, you know, from his tax history, I guess? Well, you know, I think, I, I think, Paul, you know, they put they put a lot of clothing on themes we've already known in the past about Trump, that, that he's, he's, he's a haphazard businessman uh, and, and a serial bankruptcy artist. Um, that's made real in their numbers. But I think this has been known about him for a long time. What I think wasn't known currently was the extent to which this vice of debt is possibly closing around him right now, given that he's in businesses like real estate and travel that are getting crunched by the pandemic. And under duress, as a president who has to face a choice between either selling assets or getting a loan, possibly compromise his foreign policy or domestic policy in order to keep his businesses afloat. And that's always been the question around Trump. Uh, the Times estimates Trump has north of $400 million in debt. I, I think it's actually um, easily north of a billion. And, uh, and he's going to be hard-pressed financially in coming years. Tim, in your litigation with Donald Trump, you got some access to his financial records. Is there anything in the Times reporting that surprises you? Uh, you know, honestly, nothing in the Times support report surprises me, but that's not to take away from what a tour de force it is, because they put it all in one place. Yeah. They got years and years that no one else, including me, has ever gotten, and it's been, and they've made it into a public document. Oh. Uh, I wasn't able to do that. I think the thing that surprises me, I guess, the most in there is um, this flagrant disconnect between what his taxes absolutely show and, and how he misleads and lies about them in public routinely and has been since 2015. Tim O'Brien, there's one paragraph. And folks, I, I can't say enough about how the Times bent over backward to provide perspective and context. They look at all the other rich people. The 0.001%, the thousandth of Americans, one one thousandth of Americans, I think that math is. And and the Tim O'Brien, the average rate of those fancy people is a 24% tax. Do you perceive that he's literally an outlier in his tax avoidance? Or could you say right now there's 10, 20 other people like him out there? Well, he's an outlier. I don't know many, how, how many other people are like him out there. But over a 20-year period, Donald Trump paid $400 million less in taxes than his peers in the same tax bracket. So he's clearly not paying what even um, his affluent uh, yeah. competitors and friends are paying. So to your point earlier, to Paul Sweeney's good question, very quickly, Tim O'Brien, you talk about the way he's presented his finances is he in trouble with fraud with all your research? Is he trouble with the idea of not being uh, all correct with banking relationships and such? He's under investigation right now by the Manhattan U.S. Manhattan District Attorney for possible tax and accounting fraud and campaign finance fraud. So, of course, there's an issue about whether or not he's been above board all these years. $70,000 to style his hair? <laughs> you and I don't have that problem, Tom. No, no, <laughs> we don't. Tim O'Brien, thank you, sir. Oh, I just want to say, Mr. O'Brien, folks, started his day with us uh, way, way back at 5 or 6 o'clock, and we really appreciate his effort uh, today and his expertise. I really can't say enough about Trump Nation. You know, you say it's dated. Well, you know what? It's a snapshot into a pre-presidency uh, Trump 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.